you're being invited to be part of conversations about science. And then I realized, oh, this is a nonfiction graphic novel. I should just make this thing. Hi, this is Universe of Art, a podcast from Science Friday and WNYC Studios about artists who use science to take their creations to the next level. I'm Dee Peterschmidt. Let's talk about physics. It's one of my favorite fields of science, and theoretical physics is filled with truly otherworldly concepts. Like quantum mechanics, one object can potentially exist in two places at once. That is so wild and so interesting. But also, you know, it's often a huge challenge to actually understand what's going on here in these concepts. I can usually explain the high-level what of something, like what a black hole does, but I'm usually at a total loss when I try to understand how something in this field works. So today, we're going to continue our comics theme from the last episode and feature the Science Friday interview from 2018 with theoretical physicist Dr. Clifford V. Johnson, who's also a professor at USC, and Dr. Jan Levin, a writer and physics professor. Johnson wrote and illustrated a really cool graphic novel called The Dialogues, Conversations About the Universe, where he explains these complicated physics concepts through conversations between characters who have different levels of expertise on this topic. Yes, some characters are physics professors, but a lot of them are just people who happen to be interested in the topic and they want to learn more. And Johnson even taught himself how to draw for this book, which I just love. Anyway, here's Science Friday host Ira Flato with that interview. Welcome to Science Friday, Dr. Johnson. It's a pleasure to be here. You're, you're a working physicist, but you taught yourself to draw to make this book. It looks like the work of a comic industry veteran. Oh, that's very kind of you. Uh, yes, I, I, I think it it sort of fits with, with what we do as theoretical physicists, which is we're, we're, we're interested in probing a particular research area. We need to learn some new techniques, so we just take the time out and learn the techniques. And so yeah, that's well, what I did. It's over 200 pages of all kinds. There must be a 1,000 panels or more in there. Um, yeah. How long did that take to do? Well, uh, bearing in mind that I, I have my, my professor gig during the day, as it were, I, I uh, was mostly doing this in my spare time, except for the last um, semester where I had a sabbatical semester. And so uh, I, I started drawing on it seriously um, in around 2010 was when I started trying to figure out whether I could draw for it. Right. And then uh, uh, realized that it was it was possible and then over the years uh during you know spring break and between bits of research and what have you i did it uh, mm. until i finished in 2016 that's just amazing and the book is called the dialogues and the dialogue and the graphic novel aspects i think to me reading it takes the scary part away from it and i was trying to come up with an analogy for what the book is like to read and i came up I was watching the film of Henry V last night on TV. You know, it's one of my favorite Shakespeare plays. Mm -hmm. And if I were just to read any Shakespeare, it's very hard to understand what's going on in the scene. But if you graphic, make it into a film or video and watch the actors, they sort of bring to life between the words. And that's what I see you have done in your book, is some of these concepts seem to be very scary, but when you create the graphics... And the dialogue between the characters, and there it loses that scary part, and you say, "Oh, that's how that works." Thank you. That, that's that's what I intended, and I'm I'm really glad to hear that, that it works in that way. That that's a really great analogy with the 
bringing uh, bringing the page, the words on the page to life in theater or film. That's mm-hmm. a great analogy. Thank you. Uh, speaking of bringing to life, I want to bring on uh, Jana Levin, who is author of uh, Black Hole Rules, uh, Blues, I'm sorry, Black Hole Blues, and has a new special on black holes out on Nova this week. She's professor of physics and astronomy at the Barnard College of Columbia University. Good to have you back. Thanks. I'm here and I am alive. <laughs> and it's good to hear you, Clifford. Hi, great to hear you. <laughs> Let's talk about one of the ideas Clifford plays with in the book is this perception in the media and the public, which is string theory, right or wrong, multiverse, right or wrong, which sides are you on, and so on. But in real life physics, it's not quite as black and white as it, uh, Janet. No, I mean, I think it's really important as a scientist not to put a belief system first. The whole point is to explore the unknown. So you don't want to walk into any field and say, this is what I believe. There has to be a certain agnosticism about everything. And so um, approaching string theory or the multiverse, you may have a a strong intuition that it's right or wrong. Mm -hmm. But it's really important. And that might drive you to ask a particular question or pursue a particular calculation. But it's really important to always be open-minded to the other point of view. And that's what is is one of the strengths of this book, Clifford, is that you have a dialogue. The the book, the, the cartoons, the... The novel is based on two people sitting together over a cup of coffee or in a train, and they're having a dialogue about something, questioning each other's beliefs, asking them to, you know, give them their opinion, and sometimes not agreeing, but then trying to find, you know, some common ground of belief there. Yeah, and I was trying to, I I was trying really uh, to celebrate that kind of conversation, which, uh, no disrespect to some of the wonderful uh, science books that are out there, but it, it did seem that a lot of them sort of clean up the discussion in a way where you lose that that conversational aspect and and the messiness of conversation, which is which which can be quite engaging. So I try to represent that kind of conversation in the book, and and really show the various kinds of issues that get people into heated debates, and uh, mm. and then try to also to show that it, it it it's just by no means clear. Research doesn't work in the very simple way that these these sorts of um, which side are you on debates are often presented. Mm-hmm. And we have some of the working sketches for the book up on our website next to the finished panels. People can find that at sciencefriday.com slash physics. But I wonder if that process of refining and revision in art is really all that different from the same process when we're working on a new physics theory. Mm. Refining, rewriting, finding the beauty in the equation. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, uh, go ahead, John. Oh, no, I was just going to say I love that aspect of the book. I think that's so important. Um, exactly what you're saying, Clifford, that a lot of science books are kind of coming down from the mountain. And again, no disrespect because they're wonderful, but with the answers. And really the process of discovery is very, very messy and very exciting. That's half the thrill. And, and as I was saying in these sketches, you see this kind of wonderful process of discovery and uh, and and getting deeper and better and closer to some kind of representation that that you're really looking for. Did you set Clifford? Did you set out to do it that way, or did you wind up saying this is the only way I could do it? Um, actually, uh, about I, I want to say 18 years ago, um, I first had the core idea for the book, which was to to have dialogues. I really wanted dialogues to be upfront. I wanted it to be uh, more that you're 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 being invited to be part of or at least to uh, witness conversations about science as opposed to having the news brought to you from on high as it were Mm. so that was the core idea and then i thought it would be really engaging uh to maybe see 
who these people were who were having the conversation. And then later on, I thought, hey, it would be fun to see where they're having the conversation. And then gradually, over a number of years, um, those elements, those visual elements became more and more important to me. And it wasn't until about um, 2005, 2006, when I realized, oh, wait, I should just use narrative uh, art for this. And then I realized, oh, this is a non-fiction, non-fiction graphic novel um, that uh, I should just I should just make this thing, and so mm. that was that was the beginning of the of the final journey of uh, starting to draw it. Jan Eleven, tell you tell us about your Nova special. Oh, so, um, it aired on Wednesday. It's called Black Hole Apocalypse, but it's now you can stream it on from the Nova website for the next few weeks. Um, it was a real experiment in also visual representation, and that's a different situation because unlike Clifford's book, which I really admire particularly because of the single authorship drawing it himself, I mean, that just really has my my admiration. Um, this is a big collaboration. It's a big team, a lot of people involved in the writing and the direction and the production, and a lot of scientists interviewed for it and each giving their side. Mm. So it's a completely, almost the opposite end of that kind of creative experience. Well, it's what, great, though. I saw it. It's uh, thanks. Thanks so much. <laughs> I get to fly around in a spaceship. I mean, who doesn't want to do that? I fall into a black hole. I mean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's bring up black holes because in, in the book, in the dialogues, it appears that the black hole, if we understand the black hole, we might be able to unite the two ununitable parts of physics now, which which is you know the, finding the grand unified theory, gravitation, and quantum physics. Mm-hmm. Is that is that when you st- set out to write the book? Is that a major theme you wanted to show that we might be able to unite those? It wasn't, there. Um, it wasn't one of the main things I wanted to talk about, but it, it, it did come up a number of times because black holes uh, tend to draw you in uh, both physically and narratively, um, uh, among other things. And in, in, the, in the field of re- research um, of theoretical physics, trying to understand some of these questions, black holes have become central because they, they lie at the cusp of the, the, the best we know about the classical understanding of space-time, which is Einstein's theory of general relativity, and, uh, and, and, and quantum mechanics. Somehow, black holes turn out to be this wonderful testbed for any new ideas you have about quantum gravity, how space and time work quantum mechanically, which is one of the big quests. Right. Uh, it, 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 you have to test it against what black holes are telling you and how black holes behave. And, and sometimes it, it either... Um, sinks or swims on how well it behaves in that context. So black holes have become this wonderful uh, laboratory of ideas. Janet, you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we talked a lot in the show about black holes, how nature actually makes them. Um, theoretically, they're incredibly interesting, but for a long time, even Einstein believed nature would protect us from their formation, that that wouldn't be possible. And the fact that nature thought of a way to make black holes, which seems to involve killing off really big stars as a death state, um, is phenomenal. But what Clifford's saying is absolutely true, that almost more importantly, black holes are a fundamental landscape on which we can act out the the most extreme scenarios that involve the clash between the physics on the small scales, um, quantum mechanics, and the physics on the larger scales, which is the curved space-time. And it's really only there, or maybe in the black hole, that we have a way of getting clues and evidence, even theoretically by pushing the mathematics of what's next. Because that's where they meet, right? Yes. They're right there. Both elements that Mm -hmm. uh, are seemingly irreconcilable are reconciled. 
Well, they're yeah. not oh, reconciled they by, in oh, our minds right. yet. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the well, black hole has reconciled them. Yes. It, in, indeed. And, and, and so, uh, you know, and it, it goes back, of course, one of the most famous names in this field is, is Stephen Hawking. And it goes back uh, somewhat to, to some of the work that was going on at the time, in, in, including Hawking's work, but most famously Hawking radiation. All right. Uh, which, uh, which I'm going to tell you to save that thought because ah, we have to take okay. a break. <laughs> well, it's a good place to go back to Hawking Radiation. Clifford Johnson and Jan 11, uh, we'll be right back after this break. Stay with us. It's a, it's, a, it's a big comic book. It's, you know, it's a graphic novel. It's just wonderfully done. Um, Thank you. And, you know, also part about it, what I was really struck about was you had panels in there that had no conversation. There was no dialogue. It's like, this is where you think, right? Mm. You're watching yes. the characters just sitting and thinking about what they've just said. Yes, I, I, I also like to celebrate um, silence uh, as a, a, you know, a breathing space, uh, but mm. uh, it, it visually uh, in comics, I think, is a re- really wonderful thing. There's always the danger that people will just sort of skip through those bits and look for the, for the speech bubbles, but, but I, I hope that um, some people will, will appreciate that I'm, what I'm trying to give you uh, time uh, for yourself to think, and maybe the characters are thinking, or maybe the whole story is sort of working up to this dialogue and there's these quiet parts that it's nice to actually uh, mm. go through slowly uh, in anticipation of the conversation. Yeah, because it, it's good that it's written because we can look back on the panels and the, there are, are equations in there, some famous equations in there mm-hmm. that, you know, I've have new, I, I found new meaning in them, in, in them from what you've written. Uh, let's go to uh, the phones. Let's go to Martina in Oakland. Hi there. Hi there. Can you hear me okay? I can. Go right ahead. Thank you. I wanted to, this is seemingly unrelated. I wanted to thank the author. I just took a first glance at your book, um, and I immediately noticed that your characters are multi-ethnic. Um, and uh, my daughter, who is black, uh, often doesn't see herself or find herself in books. And and I'm so excited that she will find herself in this one. It means a lot to parents like me. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, there are. You you, you look like you have, uh, you know, tried to put as much as you can of of diversity into the book. Right? Yeah, and and it it, it didn't seem uh, sort of like a, an add-on or a forced thing that I was trying to do. It just it just you know I was designing characters and. I really just wanted to show ordinary people out there in the world having conversations about science because that's where science belongs with with everyone mm-hmm. and so it would have it would have been a big fail had i had i not ended up with uh, a range of different kinds of people on the page mm-hmm. uh, one of the scientists uh, in the book makes the point uh, that you can have a simple elegant underlying theory and yet still have lots of solutions to the equations that define it uh, Janice. so it's not so simple or elegant if, if, it, that. <laughs> if that's true, right? Yeah, I mean, this has happened in string theory where there's a proliferation of solutions and uh, what one sort of hopes for as a scientist is that there's a prediction for one, for one being singled out. And um, and so we find ourselves in this unusual position where this this theory, which may, may be the one that unifies quantum mechanics and gravity and explains the black hole and explains Hawking evaporation and explains so much is not singling out a specific 
solution. And that leads us to ideas like the multiverse. Maybe there are many universes in which there are all slightly different permutations of the laws of physics. Um, we're grappling with that. And people in, in the book, the characters in the book are saying maybe we need new physics. Or, we're, or, or string theory is wrong and string, we need new physics, and, yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and does, and it gets to a question I ask a lot because I, I can't understand all the mathematics and uh, I can't understand 12 dimensions or whatever, um, is maybe the math really doesn't describe reality even though it works. Oh, I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, it's an interesting question because mathematicians are way ahead of us in inventing mathematics that they don't foresee will have application in physics. Um, the mathematics that Einstein used existed before him, and he found an application for it by mm -hmm. understanding it could represent curved space-time. Is it possible that all the mathematics always has a representation in physical reality? I mean, these are profound questions. Or are simple things like irrational numbers simply not part of reality? Yeah. Yes, it's actually, uh, there's one of the stories uh, starts out with that discussion, which is, well, do you actually, well, it's, it comes up in the discussion, which is, it, do we invent mathematics or do we discover it? And depending upon which position you take, it, it does say something about the, the whole business of research in theoretical physics. Uh, these wonderful things we make up, um, sometimes mm -hmm. they could just end up being wrong or maybe they'll have applications we just haven't thought of yet. String theory may turn out to be wrong for the things we uh, started applying it for, but maybe it'll have applications in some other piece of physics one day uh, and so on and so forth. It's, it's very interesting. Well, when does, a, when does an idea, I mean, lose its validity if we don't have a test for it? Like string theory, mm. we can't test. And then you talk about that in the book a little bit. And Janet, let me get... Well, I think that that's actually something we just have to accept that our tests might not catch up with our ideas in a human lifespan. But that doesn't mean that the ideas have failed. When we prove that something can't be proven, that's a whole other level. That's mm -hmm. like good old proof that things can't be proven. We're nowhere near that. There is an absolutely no proof that string theory can't be proven. And I think that as long as it remains possible, we have to allow for the great ideas to come. And maybe they won't come in the next five, ten years. Maybe they'll come in a hundred. And that's, that's just something we have to accept. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's important to remember that uh, physicists are really very pragmatic. And this goes back to the whole business of what side are you on, string theory or anti-string theory. Physicists are very pragmatic. And the point is, is that string theory right now seems to be um, in best shape for doing what we think we're trying to do with unifying, you know, quantum mechanics and gravity and things like that. But if something better came along, you'd, you'd see even the most diehard string theorists would drop string theory in a flash and work on that other thing. It's really that we're, we're not really religiously wedded to, to string theory in the way that is often presented. It really is pragmatism. Mm. We're just trying to find the tools that work best for describing nature because we're physicists. You know, and you get the impression because uh, that, uh, from reading the book, because there are so many different subjects and people, people brought up in the book, and we sort of lose track how many physicists are out there thinking on different ideas we never hear about? Yes. You know, and and maybe one of those ideas will bubble up, so to speak, and become acceptable. But there are so many Absolutely. different ideas that they're being that they're kicking about. Well, what I think you're striking on, which is something which is very important and I'm not sure has as important a place in science today as it ought to, and that is risk taking. And I really encourage young scientists 
not to be afraid of making mistakes or taking risks. And there is a real sort of aversion to that professionally. And I, I think it's very important to, to be willing to be wrong or you're, you're really not stretching enough or trying on great, en- great enough ideas. Mm-hmm. And one of, the, one of the topics that you just touch on in, in the dialogues, uh, which is now seeming to me as we follow Physics on Science Friday, is the lack of um, the inclusion of entanglement enough mm. in physics theory. In mm. other words, we now are talking more, we're seeing more people talking about how entanglement is real, but we don't see it enough in the equations or it's just now entering into the mainstream. Wait, am I reading that wrong, Clifford? It, it's, it's actually uh, becoming, in the last few years, uh, that's changing rapidly in a very mm-hmm. positive way. I think there were many times in various discussions um, uh, going back uh, decades where we would touch on some of uh, the, the, the the more sort of full-on aspects of quantum physics in our discussions of black holes and things like that. and uh, But we'd back away and, and then the, the conversations would come back later on and we'd again sort of back off from the fully quantum description. This time round, we're revisiting a lot of these old questions about the nature of space-time and quantum physics and what have you, with perhaps better tools and better intuition than we've ever had. And those tools include full-on descriptions of things like mm-hmm. uh, entanglement from quantum theory and, and so on and so forth. So to the point now that there are toy models that people work on where you actually discover space-time as a sort of approximation to an underlying reality which is much more quantum mechanical, which is much more about uh, entanglement. So space-time emerges as a, as a sort of uh, derived object from an underlying quantum reality. And those are the sorts of things we're hoping we can build into a full theory of how the world works eventually. Mm-hmm. Let's go to the phones. Let's go to Mark in Lincolnshire, Illinois. Did I get that right, Hi, Mark? Amanda. Yes, you did. Thank you very much. Uh, hi, I'm a great show. I listen to it nearly every week whilst I'm traveling. Um, oh, I just go, I mean, both Clifford and Jen really hit the point of uh, it's not coming, as Jen said, not coming down from the mountain with the answer. There's a whole story behind it. And I'd just like to give one recently where my father's a permanent physicist in the UK. And he um, has come up with, uh, he's been, was over here in the US for a while and uh, was down in North Carolina looking at a at a museum of a sheet of mica. And on those sheets of mica, there are tracks. And he worked for 50 years to prove that those tracks were particle tracks. And then eventually, one of the particle tracks he couldn't explain, and he discovered out of that a new, a new energy form or called a quodon. And that's now gone into, they look, think they are now pushing that forward even further. And it could be the new, I'm not going to say superconductivity, they've... T- um, called it hyperconductivity. So, but the story, well, back to what Jen was saying, it's a story of 50 years of work and risk-taking, as she was saying. So absolutely right. Really well put. Right, thanks a great show, Emma. Thank, thank you. Thanks for the call. I uh, mean, yeah, I, I, I really often like to emphasize that this is a kind of climbing Mount Everest endeavor, that a lot of scientists take this on for reasons that are hard to understand and um, and can take their entire lives, and not everyone makes the summit. And there are some amazing stories of success and failure along the way. But it's not just the scientists, because somebody has to pay them. 
<laughs> well, somebody has to fund the research and make the choice. We are going to fund this. Absolutely. Sort of thing, you know? And if you look at the LIGO story in particular, the funders were crucial in ensuring that this succeed. And there were many opportunities along the way for them to turn away and, and let the project fizzle. And so we also have to thank our country for supporting science and not forget mm. that. Yes. Uh, so, so going back to one of the main points I made before, because we're, we're running a little bit, I'm like, we could talk about this forever, but let's talk about the 800-pound gorilla in the room, which is a black hole, uh, <laughs> a little heavier than that maybe. <laughs> is, is, is the black hole going to be the Rosetta Stone for physics? Yeah, I mean, I really feel the black hole is the key to providing us evidence. It's giving us clues all the time. And, and as we experiment, even just in pen and paper, on the surface of a black hole, it is nudging us ever closer to some revelation. And, and I, I think it may be. What do you think, Clifford? I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I think, it, uh, as I said before, it, 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 it has this, this pull, uh, both, both uh, literally and metaphorically, which is, inter- which is interesting in that it's showing uh, the, the concept of the black hole and the, the mathematics and physics that the black hole leads you to shows up in so many different areas of theoretical physics, um, uh, both directly and indirectly. Uh, and uh, that's really interesting to see. I think his, there's an interesting history story that's going to be told about that, um, and, um, but it's also instructive physically. It, you know, astrophysics is the obvious place. Um, uh, now, a, a whole new, disc, new way because of uh, colliding black holes giving us gravitational wave signals that we can detect, uh, expanding astrophysics in a huge way. But then you come to questions of uh, the quantum nature of space-time, etc. And again, black holes seem to be uh, mm. central there. But then through things like string theory, you find that the properties of black holes, even abstract properties on the page, black holes in strange space-times, if you work out the mathematics sometimes turn out to be powerful ways of recasting other kinds of physics, which you can actually dress up to look like the physics of black holes for the sake of doing a a useful calculation. So black holes are becoming this sort of ubiquitous concept and uh, even a toolbox for doing physics. So it it is quite a remarkable um, Mm -hmm. idea. Jen 11, you got the Novus, the Novus special. Is it the same title as your book, Black Hole Blues? No, it's Black Hole Apocalypse. Black Hole. <laughs> <laughs> gone, Black Hole. gone TV. I can see big time. Yes, well, it's not Black Hole Utopia, is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, Black Hole Blues is actually so named because Ray Weiss, who won the Nobel Prize for the LIGO discovery of the colliding black holes, along with Kip Thorne and Barry Barish that Clifford just mentioned, um, uh, gave me the title because he said to me, like, a month before the discovery, if we don't detect black holes, this whole thing's a failure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, thinking of things we haven't discovered yet, is the whole idea of the, of the theory of everything, is that gone? Is there still possible? We talk, That's been talked about for decades. Yeah, it's not gone. Um, it's really still, in some sense, what, what, what Clifford's referencing when, when we're describing what the black hole can do for us. It can drive us towards that theory of everything. It will be interesting if it turns out, so the theory of everything is supposed to unify the matter forces, which is electroweak um, and strong currently, which we think can be unified. Um, and gravity. Gravity is really the outlier. Now, it might be interesting if, again, as Clifford said, it turns out that it's only matter forces 
And gravity is this illusion that emerges from the quantum phenomena, that, mm. that it's just something that we see on large scales but doesn't actually fundamentally exist. Clifford, do you have, yep. a, do you have a second act to the dialogue? Is there another book? In the um, I, 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 uh, my, the original book, as originally proposed, was about 400 pages long, so I, I cut out about um, uh, enough for almost a second volume. I actually think it would be fun to revisit... Uh, some of the same characters uh, having other conversations, but more. But in terms of the physics, which is really the starring character, I think I would probably delve even more into the quantum aspects than perhaps mm. uh, I do in this book. I, I think there's some wonderful things going on, as we've already talked about in the concept in the context of understanding space time and entanglement and things like that, that deserve a visual treatment that they really haven't been given. And there's something about the language of uh, narrative sequential art, uh, comics, if you like, that lends itself to physics more than almost any other form. And uh, I, I, I think this is just the beginning of, of what one might be able to do. So as an experiment, I'm curious to get going. It just, you know, it takes a long time. Yeah, I can say, I can tell. And, and, and it's beautifully written, beautifully drawn, very well thought out, easy to read, makes you think. And uh, it's a beautiful book. It's Great work. Thank you. It's Thank you very much. Clifford Johnson, author of The Dialogues, Conversation About the Nature of the Universe. He's also professor of physics at the University of Southern California and co-director of the L.A. Institute for Humanities there. We'll have to talk about that someday. What's going yeah, on? let's. John Levin, author of Black Hole Blues. Uh, her special on black holes are out Nova this week, and uh, she's also professor of physics and astronomy at Barnard. And you can see her uh, Nova series. You can stream it. Yeah. Good I'm to like. see you again, Jana. Great to see you. Universe of Art is hosted and produced by me, Dee Peterschmidt, and I also wrote the music. The segment you just heard was originally produced by Christopher and Tagliata, and our show art is illustrated by Abel Hayford. And support for Science Friday's science and arts coverage comes from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. We'll be back in two weeks. See ya!